The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about data privacy law. And I'm so excited because we're welcoming back a guest that we had on our show over nine years ago. So that's amazing. And he was wonderful, brilliant then. I don't know why it's been so long, but we're so glad to have him back again. And he's just written two new books, so we can even talk about those. So let me tell you a little bit about Lothar Dieterman. Uh, And I want to just mention his two books right now. He has written a very thick, very comprehensive book called California Privacy Law. It's a practical guide and commentary on U.S., federal, and California law. And it's the third edition in 2018. It was published by the International Association of Privacy Professionals, of which he is a member, and I'm a member too. So it's just very, very chock full of excellent, excellent um, law and understanding of what is going on in California privacy law, especially with all of our new uh, new laws out here. He also is the author of Dieterman's Field Guide to Data Privacy Law, International Corporate Compliance, and this is the third edition. And this one is also really comprehensive. I can even understand it, so that's very, very uh, helpful that a layperson can understand what it says. So let me tell you a little bit about Luther, if you don't remember from nine years ago. He's been helping companies in the Silicon Valley and all around the world take products and business models, intellectual property, and contracts global for nearly 20 years. And he advises companies on data privacy law compliance information technology, commercialization, copyrights, open source licensing, electronic commerce, technology transactions, sourcing, and international distributions. And, you know, it's so hard to keep up with all this privacy law because it's constantly changing and evolving. He's a lawyer with Baker and McKenzie's office in San Francisco and Palo Alto, and he's a member of the firm's International Commercial Practice Group and the TMT and Health Industry Groups. So he has uh, really kept up doing lots of research to be able to even write these books, collaborate with people. So we're so thrilled. It's been way too long. Thank you for joining us, Lothar. Thank you for having me back, Mary. Yeah. So let's talk about how did you end up in California? So this is 1997, and I was washed ashore with the gold rush of e-commerce. At the time, I was working on a 
postdoctorate project, a book on freedom of speech on the internet, hmm. which earned me qualification for tenure as a law professor at the Free University of Berlin. And I was about two years into it and was at the same time clerking to get admitted to the German bar. You have to clerk for two years for a court and they assign you to different places. And I wanted to come to the U.S. because the U.S. was far ahead of Europe and still is on Internet, e-commerce, information technology more generally. And so I did four months in New York working for the German consulate mm. and then loved it in New York and was thinking of spending more time there. And I have to say several New Yorkers told me I should check out California first and they thought I'd like it. So I signed up for a clerkship again through this German court that assigns you and it happened to be Baker McKenzie in San Francisco that uh, I ended up getting an offer from. When I started working there, I loved it so much that I absolutely wanted to come back. And I came back in 98, and then I moved from Berlin to San Francisco in 99 in April, then took the California bar and started as a first-year associate at Baker McKenzie. That's wonderful. We're glad that you came here. And uh, the weather is better than Berlin and New York, right? That's for sure. But um, um, I mean, right now, um, with all the fires that were coming through in the fall, I, I have second uh, guesses yeah. about the, the weather quality here. But that's true. Um, by and large, I love California. It's my second home. I have U.S. citizenship now, and, and this is um, yeah. a wonderful place still after 20 years that I've been here. Yeah. Well, we're, we're happy that you're here. We're so happy that you're here and all the great work that you're doing. And plus, you know so much about European law and you have, you know, studied over there. So you are very familiar with the whole culture of Europe and how to do this, you know, the um, international aspects of data privacy. So how did you get to be a techie? What is it that, you know, kind of brought you into privacy? Privacy is not just a techie concept. No, I know. And I know. <laughs> one, <laughs> one explanation could be that I was born in the German state of Hessen, where the first data protection law ever was born the same time when I was born. We're ah. both 50 years old now. Huh. And this could be one explanation. When I went to law school in Bavaria, data privacy in German, Datenschutz data protection was just one of many other topics. It was a bit of a sleepy topic. It wasn't enforced that much, but it was there as something we had to know on the exams. Um, when I clerked for a court, it did, did come up. And when I came to the U.S., as you read, my practice is all about helping companies go international or come to California from other countries. That, that is a lot of what I do. And at the time... 1997, 1998, data privacy was on my list of things to consider for companies to go and sell products or offer services online in other countries. But it wasn't always in the first top 10. It might have been in the top 20. And a lot of companies at the time were not spending as much effort on it. There were more important things. They thought there was more enforcement in other areas. And it has moved up to the top 10. And probably now it's for many companies in the top three, only recently, let's say in the last 10 years or so. Right. And then privacy just became more of my topic just because the companies that I work for were struggling with it more became a bigger dollar item in terms of risk exposure. They 
it became more of a PR issue, a customer relationship issue to have good, strong data security, data privacy. And so it was um, the reaction to where all the companies were going that also changed my practice and made this such a prominent topic on my checklist to go international. So as the companies evolved, you evolved with them and had to be catching up to speed to be able to advise them. So that's uh, it's constantly changing and I think very exciting for you too because you keep growing. You know, it's not a static kind of a law. It's uh, so evolutionary. So what are some of the challenges with regard to international data transfers? That is still one of the big topics for companies. When Europe harmonized the data protection laws in 95, it was to a group that was called at the time European Community and had just changed its name from European Economic Community, EEC. And the directive that has been applicable in Europe until May 24 this year, that directive still was called 9546EC, European Community. And I'm pointing that out because it was mostly a trade measure. It was to harmonize the data protection laws within the member states of the European Community to remove a trade obstacle and make cooperation collaboration between the member states of the European Economic Community, which just changed its name to European Community with some political ambition. And that was the main focus. In order to assure free flow of data. Right. Now, in order to get the Germans to agree to free flow of data to the British or the Spanish, who at the time did not have as developed or rigid data protection laws, they asked that as a compromise, the data would then not leave this free flow zone, the common market, installed a complete prohibition of transfers to other countries, Article 25, 26 of this directive. The same concept is still in the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, that became effective on May 25, 2018. Um, still in there is now in the Articles 44 till I think goes to 49, and still says that companies within the European Union should not transfer the data outside. There are ways to um, overcome this prohibition. So it's, it's worded very strictly, but there are exceptions. And I can talk a little bit about them, what they mean from a practical perspective. But I want to also point out that when the Europeans did this, of course, a lot of other countries thought that this is a nice trade measure for international transfers within the European community. Now it's called European Union. But it's really a protectionist, a trade obstacle measure with respect to other countries. And a lot of countries have started retaliating. They also put these restrictions into their laws and make mm. it difficult then for companies in their countries to share personal data with the Europeans. A lot of countries did that. The U.S., by the way, has not, even though we're also changing a little bit the outlook on international trade under the current administration. So international transfers remain a problem for companies, and they are first and foremost drafted to protect the privacy of individuals there, and that's the legislative intent, but they also have this trade obstacle effect, which is 
not to be underestimated and which will continue to play a major role in companies. Right. Now, and since we had that, I want to just add one yeah, thing that is a ahead. new thing that is also important for these international transfers, and that is a relatively newer phenomenon is that countries said additionally of restricting the international transfers, they said, and we also want that the data stays local. Mm. Those are called data residency or data localization laws. Russia was the first country who mm, passed such a law, a very uh, rigid one in 2015. Brazil had thought about imposing one in 2014, but the legislator last minute thought otherwise and removed it because of pressure from their own industry that didn't think this was a good idea. And Kazakhstan followed, Indonesia has something similar, China has now in a data security, cybersecurity uh, legal regime imposed something similar on Chinese companies. And that is another restriction and obstacle to international collaboration that if countries require that data be um, stored locally. Those laws sometimes get added to privacy laws as well, but I want to be clear, they're not privacy laws, they're anti-privacy laws. These residency or localization laws have as their main objective to keep data available for the local governments in the interest of national security, but then also in the interest of trade protectionism and maybe independence from global cloud computing and internet and other infrastructures that these companies do not want to depend on and therefore require that data be stored locally on local servers operated by local companies. So those are the main obstacles to international data transfers today. Yeah, and that let's talk about really how that affects. I know this was a, a huge issue for American companies. So how do you advise them to deal with this situation? Because even a little company that does, uh, you know, has customers abroad have to uh, abide by these directives, right? That's right. These laws are typically worded in a way that they apply also to foreign companies. India has just come up with a new law to that effect as well. And I have a paper on that on the Social Science Research Network, SSRN. So if you plug in my name with Indian Personal Data Protection Act, then you can find that I'm comparing that to California and European data protection laws. And the impact is really for companies that they... It, they find it more difficult to grow in jurisdictions that have these residency laws. They have the following options. Yeah. With the residency laws, they can work with a local partner and have data stored there locally. But their customers in all the other countries are not excited about having their customers stored in Russia, for example, or in China or right. in Indonesia. And therefore, they will then have to compartmentalize their data storage. That means they can't benefit from the efficiencies of cloud computing with dynamic usage of computing and storage resources, but mm. they have to set up something separate for these countries, and that costs more money, and that is a big decision for companies to do if they want to do it. Wow. Plus, they have to think about, do they really want to engage with the local partner? Do they want to set up their own subsidiary? In China, for example, internet business is largely off-limits to foreign-owned companies, only Chinese companies are permitted to engage in that, only they can get the licenses that are required, or in some cases, uh, joint ventures can do that, very expensive to set up. 
So the market isn't even open for foreign companies, and mm. they have to then decide whether they just stay out of those markets altogether is a big decision. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a good point. You said the super small companies, what do they do? Well, many of them don't even know about this, and they don't have the money to really think about even or assess what applies to them. And they may grow quite successfully with individual users in foreign countries without knowing what the compliance regime is. And until they're of a certain size or something happens that irritates the foreign governments, maybe nothing will happen to them because it is always difficult for a foreign country to enforce their laws against a company, for example, that sits here in the U.S. They, can't, they can issue fines, but they can't enforce them. The U.S. government will not help them to enforce oh. it, just oh. like the foreign governments won't help the U.S. government to enforce U.S. laws either. And so... While you're still small, you can probably still grow mm, without much restriction and without much knowing what is going on. But if you have a certain size, you're on the radar, your corporate customers are asking about how are we going to comply with it, then it becomes a bigger topic and a problem. And then companies have to think about how they want to react to these residency laws. On the international transfer restrictions, the true privacy laws, there are now very established mechanisms. One is intercompany agreements based on promulgated contract clauses that governments post. That is something that works. There is the EU-US privacy shield program where companies can voluntarily submit to self-regulatory principles, if you will, and they make a commitment to that. If they don't live up to these commitments, then the FTC will enforce basically what is European privacy law on U.S. soil. Mm. And that has been, I think, in practice quite successful, even if it is occasionally criticized in Europe. There are binding corporate rules that companies can draft for themselves and submit for approval by European data protection authorities to apply worldwide. And there are also, of course, options in getting consent in place with individual data subjects in other countries or form contracts with them that support the international transfers of personal data. So some some of those exceptions can be used by companies. And I think U.S. companies have become quite successful and sophisticated with dealing with such um, international transfer mechanisms. And that's where you can really help companies by helping to uh, prepare these contracts and help to negotiate those to save them a lot of uh, aggravation. So, you know, you were talking a few minutes ago about how these governments are, you know, really interfering with privacy. So why do governments sometimes not protect privacy and even intrude into data privacy? Well, our social contract, why we have governments in the first place is that we want them to protect us from harm by other people, by other countries, national security and the police intelligence authorities, the military, they need information on where attacks are coming from, and that will typically push them towards monitoring behavior, collecting data. That was also the concern why my home state of Hessen 50 years ago drafted and then enacted the first data protection law ever. They were concerned at the time that the German government was starting to use computer resources, software, in order to monitor um, activities of terrorists at the time. This was the Red Army fraction. Those were um, people that didn't have any criminal record, and they were kind of hard to find. And so 
the German government at the time was starting to build profiles. And of course, with Germany's history of government abuse, Holocaust, Nazis, East Germans spying on people, there was also a strong reaction of the German people who said, oh, no, we don't want to go down that path again. And that's why they passed a data protection law as a balance. And they created a data protection authority to be somewhat independent and also watch over other authorities of the government, such as the police and other agencies, in order to make sure that privacy is not completely pushed out of the way in the interest of national security. Yeah, they were strong leaders in that area. You think about World War II, how the Nazis had collected such information on people, and if they would have had the computers and <laughs> and the databases that they have now, oh my gosh, that, uh, yeah, it's understandable that there was a rebellion by the German people who didn't want to touch that again. So, so thankful, we're very thankful to the German people for taking the lead on that, that's for sure. So let's talk a little bit about, um, about how the Internet of Things really, uh, the Internet of Everything, feeds big data. I know you, you talk about that in, in your book. Um, and Dieterman's Field Guide to Data Privacy Law. So kind of share with us what your thoughts are on that. The Internet of Things stands for the fact that devices are being increasingly connected. Mm -hmm. And this is not just our phone or computer anymore. It's our house. It is the car, drones, other devices, all are connected. The manufacturers of medical devices are putting connectivity in there in order to align and collaborate better and give better care, healthcare. And through all these connections, of course, vast amounts of data are created. Right. And to process them and make sense of them, new technologies have been created as well. That is sometimes referred to as big data. I don't like the term that much because it is actually used here in California to sell these great data processing capabilities. But when people hear big data, then it sounds a little bit like big government and too big to fail, big banks, <laughs> other topics that are not really with a positive connotation. So I think my advice to my clients is let's call this what it really is, analytics capabilities or something that emphasizes the positive aspects of it and not just call it big. Yeah. But whatever we call it, there is a huge amount of data out there now and we do need a huge amount of data, and we need to share the data between companies. We need to create more connectivity. And as we have been doing that in the last few years, there have been some backlashes in the public and concerns about this data sharing. And so we have in Europe this complete prohibition of data sharing between companies with a need to find a legitimate basis for sharing And we have now with the California Consumer Privacy Act, a very rigid regime here that defines any sharing for valuable conservation as selling of personal information, which is, of course, a very negative connotation, and forces companies now to think twice or three times before they share data. But we do need to share this data so that the Internet of Things works and works in our favor. We need the autonomous cars to recognize pedestrians and bicyclists and We need them to train the artificial intelligence so that they are really intelligent and make the right calls, and therefore they need this data. And that is a big challenge for companies right now to 
rethink their data monetization programs in a way that takes care of privacy at the same time as this need for more and more data for purposes of technological progress, safety, healthcare, artificial intelligence, autonomous cars, all these applications need more data. And to get the data to the right spots securely and responsibly is a big challenge for companies right now. Right. And when you talk about responsibly, uh, one of the things that, that we talk about the principles, the privacy principles, is consent. And um, I, I found your discussion about what is the best way to get consent, valid consent. So can you share that with us a little bit? I mean, consent is a tough topic because consent is particularly valuable if it's informed, voluntary, expressed, specific to a particular situation. But few of us really take the time to read the privacy policies, the notices, understand the technology that we are really informed when we grant our consent. And often it's merely a notice that is given to us and then we click on something and move on. Right. And so there, there are limitations of what you can do with consent. The Europeans have great concerns in that respect, and they generally don't have as much faith in the individual capacity to exercise liberty and freedom responsibly. And they're more paternalistic. They will invalidate consumer contracts much more easily than we do here in the U.S. And therefore, also in the consent area, the Europeans are discouraging the use of consent. They say every consent has to be freely revocable, and they put a whole bunch of requirements into consent um, laws that make it very difficult for companies to rely on consent. Here in the U.S., on the other hand, we only have a few laws that make consent difficult, and many other laws work based on a privacy notice, a unilateral one. And even if consumers don't read them, the plaintiff's lawyers will, the regulators will, the attorney generals will, and will take action against companies. Also in the business-to-business -business context, I think there's a lot of self-policing going on that companies want to be sure that they're working with business partners who are responsible with it. And so I think personally that consent has to continue to play a major role in privacy law to protect information self-determination, but it's not going to be the only way to make sure that companies act responsibly with data. Right. When you were just talking now about how it's so important to share for so many reasons to bring us better value in everything that we do in commerce, but at the same time, there are those scary things about what could happen to us in the sharing. And, you know, whether it's identity theft, which has been something that I've been, you know, very involved with in understanding and helping victims or, um, or just being denied services for errors in that collection and, um, and that sharing that I think the, the, there's the benefits and the burdens of sharing, right? I mean, there's some real, uh, concerns about sharing that, that have to be addressed. And, um, I think they're going to be addressed soon. You know, we are just about out of time. I want to just uh, have you, I want to just give the name of your books again, and then you'll give your website. It's Dieterman's Field Guide to Data Privacy Law, International Corporate Compliance. This is a wonderful book for companies that do international, um, 
serve uh, commerce. I think it's really important for them. And the other one is this big, thick book on California privacy law, which is fantastic because it really gives us um, a great depth in what privacy law is in the state of California. So thank you so much for putting so much work into both of these books. So if you could just give your website, it's time to go, Lothar. Thank you. Uh, the website, uh, I have or you could the give Baker it, McKenzie. Yeah, you can give a couple of them. Website. Yeah. I have the BakerMcKenzie.com um, website. And uh, if you just plug in my name, you'll find a few other parts of resources. The international book that you mentioned and pointed out that it's much shorter is doesn't have any footnotes. It's a practical guide for companies to create a privacy program and deal with current issues. It's available in English in the third edition. It's also now available in Russian. Chinese, a Japanese version is coming out. There's a German version. Spanish and Portuguese are in the works. So it is available also in other parts of the world and other languages. The California one is a little thicker, as you pointed out. Yeah. Because it is not just the practical guide, but it's also a complete, and I think to my knowledge, the only commentary on all California and federal privacy laws. No one is going to read that all through. No, but if you, you ever like, want to see... Uh, yeah, you yeah, use you, it like a resource. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, we've got to go. So um, go to Baker and McKenzie. What is the exact website for you? It's, it's BakerMcKenzie.com. Okay. And then Lothar, you will just go to... You'll just click for Doter, uh, Lothar Dieterman, D-E-T-T-E-R-M-A-N-N, and we will have you back again. Thank you so much, Lothar, and keep up the tremendous work that you're doing. We appreciate you so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.